October 6, 2020, it's a lot from Pedro Show. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
show happy tuesday kind of different you can hear 
You can hear my guest here, people, uh, via the uh, those software engineers in Estonia with their incredible Skype invention. Thurston Mo- what part of London you live in? Thurston? North London, in a little area called Stoke Newington. Stoke Newington. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It's between Dalston and, uh, you know, Newington Green. And, you know, it's all these little villages that are tied together. It's um, near the Lexington, right? That club that's really. Uh, that's right. It's very close to Lexington. So you've been close. And it's really close to Cafe Auto where you and I played together. Right, right. Yeah. In fact, yeah. uh, you also did a spiel with me. So now we're going to turn the tables. We start off the show with John Coltrane called Good Bait. And then we had cantaloupe from your new record. Cantaloupe. Right. The fruit. I, the I, can't, I can't elope. Right. <clears throat> little pun rock. Uh, that's, that's, it's poem rock. Is that what you called it? Pun rock. No, pun rock. <laughs> okay. No, it's actually, it's poem rock, but you can call it pun rock if you want. <laughs> you made a fucking pun out of that fucking word. That's why I was, I was taking a cue. So, Thurston, <laughs> when, when, when was the last album? You didn't have one. Too long ago. No, last year I put out a, a a triple CD box called Spirit Council, and the other reason it was a triple CD box is because there were just three uh, extended instrumental uh, electric guitar compositions that I did. One was like an hour, one was like forty minutes, and the other one was like the other one was a live concert where I did a piece for 12, 12 string guitars, and that was about an hour. So that was three pieces, and they couldn't fit on any format physical format uh with any other pieces so i just made three cds and put them in a box and i made a booklet and i and i distributed that on my label and uh it's called spirit council and the piece the 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 this, this first piece on it was called speaking of john coltrane it was called alice Moki jane and it was dedicated to in reference to the work of uh alice coltrane uh Moki cherry who's uh, a, a a visual artist who um is known for the work she did on the album covers of Don Cherry, who she was uh, married to, um, a Swedish woman, Swedish artist, no longer alive. Uh, and the third person uh, was Jane Cortez. And Jane Cortez was a was a great African-American female poet from the 60s into the 70s who had a pretty strong voice of resistance and resilience. And uh, she was – she had some – uh, notoriety for being uh, the the partner of Ornette Coleman. So these three women, so we're all kind of like pretty much sort of visionary artists. They very much were visionary artists, and they 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 were kind of known through the relationships to these men who had higher profiles, which was sort of part and parcel with the culture where the the women were had a devaluation in, in the in the in the in their profiles because of these these men. And so I countered that a bit by just really writing this piece of music and wanting to bring attention to their work because their work was so significant for me. Um, especially Alice Coltrane, because there was a, I had heard something in one of her recordings. She had a lot of recordings of like devotional music that was um, coming out of her Dharma studies, um, sure. which I always really liked. And there was a, there was one motif and one piece of her music that I found really really stirring, really enchanting. And I kind of, it kind of came up in some kind of uh, guitar play I was doing and I heard it and I was like, okay, I'm just going to have that define the rest of this composition as an inspiration. And so I dedicated first the piece to her. And then I started thinking about this relationship she had 
to these other women when I was talking to uh, Don Cherry's uh, 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 daughter, uh, Nana Cherry, Moki Cherry's daughter, Nana Cherry. Uh, Don's not wasn't her biological father, but she was very close to Don, and uh, she mentioned the relationship that. Uh, Moki and Alice and Jane had as uh, these three very uh, visionary art, artistic women, you know, and that and, the, and I just thought about that that kind of creative community of of, of people that like, that coexisted with these high profile uh, worlds of their of their partners. Um, that was just sort of um, for me. It was I wanted to focus on on them as people as artists and so i dedicated and referenced this piece of music to them and that was sort of, that's sort of the central piece on that spirit council cd box set to give you a very long answer to a very short question well actually my question was more about that was except for the 12 guitars 12 12 string guitar piece it was man alone right well no the uh Alice Mookie Jane piece that we were just talking about was a full group. It's it's um, it was me and my the core of my group that I play with here in London, which is James Sedwards on guitar and Deb Googe, who you know from My Bloody Valentine on bass. Uh, and um, the drummer is this fellow named Jem Dalton, who's a London drummer who I like to play with. And there's also um, an electronics uh, musician. Um, named John Lydecker, a.k.a. Wobbly, who has some affiliation with Negative Land, your old label mates at SST. Um, but he wasn't with them during the SST years, but uh, he's a little too young for that. But he works up in the Bay Area at Mills College around that scene and does the Negative Land radio show. So he's part of the whole culture jamming scene around them. Um, but I met him through a project I was doing um, focusing on some music of John Cage's that was rather arcane. And um, so we worked on this piece together and we, and uh, he, I thought he was really interesting. In fact, we kind of, we did it at Cafe Auto in London and then we, we, um, we connected again in Claremont at the college in Claremont near where you are. There's a couple, it's not near me. It's about 60, 70 miles. But uh, there's a there's a group of colleges. It's by the the, the Dairy Country, Altadena. It's funny. That's right. There's Claremont, and right next to it is Montclair. We're talking California 60, I-10, 210, that area. In it's the, Empire. But, it's the university that um, Cage had gone to early on in his studies. You know, you, you know who uh, Cal Poly's the, the the JPL, the rocket shits over there too. Oh God. Rocket ships. Rocket shit. Uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL. One of these guys, the guy, the guy who started that blew himself up in a cellar trying to make a homo nucleus or something with nitrate, nitroglycerin. Yeah. Uh, Alistair Crawley called wow. him and the L. Ron Hubbard guys a uh, bunch of clowns. Anyway, <laughs> what I wanted to know was, because... Oh, I can hear on this new record a full band. So those three CDs, they were all band projects. Okay. The, the three CDs was the, was one CD was that full band. One CD was a piece called Eight Spring Street, which I wrote in honor and dedication to Glenn Bronca, who I had played with in the late 70s and early 80s. 
Um, and I wanted to sort of have a piece dedicated to him because he had passed away a few years prior. You know, and, can I tell and you I something? Had, and, I, and, and Glenn was, you know, I was, I, was, I was close to Glenn early on, and then later in his life we reconnected. And so I wanted to write a piece that was kind of an honor to Glenn. Today is that we're talking today, October 6th is Glenn's birthday. Um, can I tell you, I was talking to Reg, interviewer on the show, and I heard him cough, and the next day he was gone. And I should have said, hey, Glenn, because I got to be in uh, Hallucination City, uh, Symphony Number no. 13 here. Uh-huh. And I, you never yeah. know. So always, if you hear somebody, say hi, because you never know. You might not get a chance. It's true. Very true. So the, I, I wrote this piece called 8 Spring Street. That was Glenn's address in New York City. And I would go there. When I first met him, I went to... Uh, his that address because I answered an ad in the newspaper for guitar players and I um, went to 8 Spring Street and that was a place that I would go to quite a bit through the years early on and hang out with him and uh, so I um, titled that piece 8 Spring Street and the third CD was this piece for 12, 12 string electric guitars I had gotten a commission from this venue here in London called the Barbican and um I had done some other work there with doing other things with other people. And I kind of addressed them and said, like, when can I have my own gig? And they said, well, what do you want to do? It has to be something rather special in order for us to sell seats here. You know, and I said, well, how about if I do a piece for 12, 12 string guitars? I just sort of said it as a bit of a joke. And they said, if you can do that, we'll, we'll, we'll book you. And, uh, so I wrote, I just closed the door. I locked the door. And I wrote an hour-long piece for 12 12-string 12 acoustics and then another hour-long piece for 12 12-string 12 electrics. And I gathered various musicians from around town, some who knew how to play very well, some who knew how to play kind of well, and some who never couldn't play at all. And like I sort of wrote, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's punk rock. And I just kind of like – I wrote these pieces knowing that that was going to be the case. You know, that you didn't have to be a um, high technique player. You just had to have some kind of ability to, uh, you know, figure out chordings. Yeah, like, you know, I read the Sun Ra book uh, by John Swed. He he took dudes right off the street. Yeah. Look, I want to play calligraphy here. Okay.
In Hollywood, aged poodles recoil in fright. Ancient sorority queens chew juicy fruit in Topanga Canyon all night. Hitchhikers from eternity flag down your Chevrolet and hug your blue jeans in Barney's Beanery, where they've added another room to hell. The jukebox keeps repeating second-hand rows, and in unison, across the land, a thousand long fingers of high school sweethearts hold their cigarettes through wisps of smoke. There is a chance, second-hand rows, a star may fall at your feet, but you know that chance withers on your lips as you sing many versions of your love poems. Torn alone in pages of the night's tarnished wings of the angel's flight, past Fontes, all the way up Sunset Strip, as unlikely as Dante's self-help program in heaven, the lights of Los Angeles endlessly hang like a hustler's mad beads. Cast a spell on neon dye tonight, dark moon, for tomorrow that ounce of stardust will be wiped from Cadillac chrome, unnoticed by freeway hawks.
show that was uh thurston moore off his new record and it is called calligraphy which is what they call writing in asia after that was planning for burial they got a new thing called something parentheses botanist after that brand new water matt nelson some uh solo stand-up bass may 1st 2020 kind of a diary entry huh then we had charlie Ply- plymel his poem, Hollywood Boulevard, for Dean Stockwell. He wrote this in the, like, 1963, and, uh, yeah, it's got Barty's Beanery in there. You know, the funny thing, I saw that, I think it's in Holland, but the first time Minutemen Black Flag brought us to Europe, I saw that. Uh, Ed uh, Keenholz made. Yeah. And everybody's yeah, yeah. faces as clocks, and on the jukebox, 
there's a there's a band, a record by a band called the Mint Men, two words, and the B side is in the militant mood. I said, "Deep Boo, look at this, <laughs> look at this," because it was made in 1965, huh? Because Minute Man was some kind of light wing. That's why Deep Boo wanted to call the band that. I actually, I pronounced it different. It was in the context of arena rock. I, I we were the Minute Men. He said, "No, the man, minute make it, men, right?" He said, "Nah, make it one word." Because motherfuckers are trying to uh, uyoku uh, appropriate pa- patriotic symbols, and we can dilute that process. What I said, okay. Uh, then we had uh, they believe in love when they look at you from Thurston Moore. So m- one thing why I asked you about all this stuff that came before them record this new record because I'm wondering Thurst, how much of that went into this new one, or is this new one, uh, uh, or the current one? Blank slate. It came from. You just. It came from. It came from different recording sessions that I had done in the last year or so, um, and you know I, I toured that last triple CD box set of instrumental music for like a year and a half, which was kind of really amazing uh, time. Uh, there was no microphone on stage, so there was no monitor in front of me. So because I, I, I usually just use monitors to hear vocals. If the stage was was bigger than usual i would have a monitor so i could hear some of the drum kit but uh you know for the most part it was a really clean stage and i really loved that not having to like deal with the microphone sound checking the microphone or the vocals or anything just really focusing on this instrumental music it was really nice to do that for a while and it was kind of cool to get on stage and play a piece of music in front of an audience some who were aware of what i was up to and and then some who weren't and then after like 10 15 minutes when that faction of the audience realized like, wow, this, this is not stopping. It just continues to progress. I really, I really enjoyed that, uh, that, that dynamic and hearing, hearing, feeling, you know, the audience kind of like sort of realize what the situation was. Sometimes it could be really polarizing, you know, I mean, not everybody has uh, the, um, the attention span for like a 60 minute piece of music. But in a live setting, you're kind of held captive anyway. So it's just like you could, you know, you you do what you do whatever you you think is worth um, sharing. That 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 exchange is really, you know, it, to me, it's always there's a real responsibility, as you know, in playing live that you you do you you deliver your A game at all times. You, you never phone that. You, you never phone that in. And so to me, that's what we were doing. And it's like it was interesting to sort of see like when somebody would fall to the wayside because they wanted to hear some more traditional kind of rock and roll, even if it was sonic rock or experimental rock, they wanted to hear that. They didn't want to hear a 60 minute long composition of electronic, of electric guitar music. So that was kind of curious to me. It's interesting, but I always felt like we were bringing like, you know, bringing our A game to it as, as always. So you're yeah, we were talking. We were talking about John Coltrane and and and, and John Gilmore uh, while we were playing the records, uh, and how we wish John Gilmore from Sun Ra's group and, and John Coltrane had played together. But there is one session that those cats played together, and it's on this uh, this Johnny Griffin, John Coltrane, Hank Mobley blowing sessions, a record that Blue Note put out on their on uh, you know like in 1975. And there's one track called the they do the standard, the way you look tonight, that Coltrane and Gilmore play together on. I'd love to just saying. That. You might want to check that shit out. I'm I would love to. You. I, I never did. I never. 
I know yeah. he watched him play with Sun Ra. They talk about it in the John's Wed book, and of course his last interview with Frankowski in that parking lot in the station wagon. Mm. Now, what you're saying is these gigs that you did with the long stuff, it informed this album. That's why they yeah. got some long pieces on here. Well, yeah, I kind of was doing that those long compositions just kind of get them out of my system. I was really referencing this time period in the late seventies and early eighties when I was living in New York and working with, uh, working with, you know, electric guitar, uh, quote unquote composers on the downtown scene then like Reese Chatham and Glenn Bronco and, and playing in their groups where their work was these, ex these extended expansive, uh, electric guitar pieces. And so I was really informed by that, as was as was Lee. And we put together Sonic Youth, the, 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 uh, having that experience, the two of us, you know, that was something that we incorporated a lot into our um, in, 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 into Sonic Youth. And so that was, I think, that was apparent. You know, we were truncating it and putting it into, uh, you know, in, in, into like quote unquote songs, you know. And so that whole idea of being a traditional band of two bass, two guitars, bass, and drums, and then sort of allowing just like really open head of experimentation to come in without changing the instrumentation, but modifying the instrumentation, you know, so we, that was, we didn't really discuss it or analyze it, but that's in retrospect, certainly what we were up to. So I wanted to get that all out of my system and I kind of wanted to sort of pay homage to it. And I, I sort of did it with those records. With this new record, I kind of wanted to sort of have a stepping off point from that. And so there's a couple of pieces on this record. There's a song called um, Locomo Locomotives, which sort of is coming out of that, but sort of bringing it back into the song format where I'm singing. And there's, there's a bit of a, uh, you could call it a proper quote unquote song. And then first, there's another piece. There's, there's, the last piece. Stop you yeah. Because we're at the end of the first hour, but that's the next tune I'm going to play. How, what a perfect seg, segui. <laughs> segui, baby. <laughs> People, it's October 6th, 2020 edition of Watt Pedro Show special guest Thurston Moore. Hold tight for hour two. October 6th, 2020. It's the second hour of the Watt from Pedro Show. <laughs>
Pedro Show. Start off the second hour with Locomotives from Thurston Moore, which, you know, unrehearsed, no prac for that Sagui. He just brought it because he's discussing what went into this new record he did. Then we had Nels Klein. He's got something new, but this is an older tune. It's called Reopens the Black One. And finally, Sam Bennett 
Tokyo with Bonafide. He's from uh, Birmingham, Sun Town, but he's lived in Tokyo now over 25 years. He was with that John Zorn Lower East thing, sides thing. So, 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 I said Nels Klein. You, you've made a couple records with Nels. Hell yeah, man. I know Nels for a long time. I met Nels when I when we first came to uh, uh, L.A. and I would go to Rhino Records and Nels was, was working there. Yep. And just Nels Klein and Byron Coley was working there. And uh, and Nels was one of our one of our first champions, you know, when we were just kind of like this weirdo group that was kind of blowing through town. And he was listening. And he, uh, I remember him approaching me at, at Rhino when I was in this in the in the in the stacks. I, I might have been there with you for God's sakes. And uh, I just remember this guy coming over and saying like, "Oh my God, I just want to talk to you about your record." But you know, uh, we only had like a couple of records out. We might have had the first EP and maybe Confusion of Sex at that point. And he was all up in it. Well, let you know? me tell and you. So, yeah, he was he, he was great. And so here's a little became, thirst. Here's a little geography lesson. Rhino is in Kim's neighborhood. Is in Westwood. Yeah. The 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 Gordon House was in um it was in um very Rancho close. Park. Rancho Park to be specific. Yeah, I know, but very close on Pico. Yeah, close. Yeah, yeah, about as close as you are to like the to Claremont. No, so, no, like, no <laughs> you're you need another geography lesson. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so Nelson and I became buds. You know, I mean, we we actually we did a we did a recording session together and then we, that same day we went and played live at Rhino records and, um, Pillow that got wand? recorded too. And that came out, uh, both of those came out of CDs. Pillow wand. Pillow wand was the, was the studio session. <laughs> and then the, the live at Rhino thing was called, um, I don't know. I forget what it was called, but it, it, was, it that, was, uh, it was that saxophone player who dressed as a man. What? Tommy, Something, yeah. There was a guy who had to cross dress. In fact, well, he was back married in the white fifties. Yeah, or something like that. Nels told me the whole story. One of the titles, because you guys didn't put any spaces oh. on the CD. <laughs> Tommy, something. What remembers Thurs? What remembers? I forget. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Okay. Um, you mean I pillow wand? Yeah, it's Tommy. I can't remember his was, name, but he was no, he was no, a no. tenor player. There was we had a we had a song called Blues for Helen Burns. Um but we also taught you're talking about um This guy had a man's name, but it was a woman in the in the the wife didn't even know. You know. Whatever. I want to play Breath right now from the new red. The live scene.
Why for Pedro show. Discussing some details, people, off air there. That was Breath from Thurston Moore. And after that, Wharton Tears with Cryptological Mathematician. Wharton Tears. Wow. Huh? Like uh, when I say, say Niles Klein, what do you think of when I say Wharton Tears? I think of I think of being in Wharton Tears' basement recording um, the Lucky Sperms record with you and Steve Shelley. Right. I actually was there twice because another time I got to record with Bob Quine, Steve Shelley. Oh, doing yeah. Uh, uh, freeze out visions of Johanna with Lee Ronaldo. Yeah, I, I I didn't know that. Well, that's why I wanted you on the show. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you were down there with Quine. It was the only time, and everybody said, "What well, he's going to rip your head off? He's a mean man, and he was the nicest guy in the world." Yeah, he was. He was. He was a sweet guy when I knew him. But yeah, I think you know. He didn't suffer fools, that's for sure. They told me the same thing about David Thomas. He's going to rip your head off. Very, <laughs> very, we did two unknown instructor albums. He was great. He ended up conducting me and George Hurley and Joe Bison. Yeah. I mean, you know, anybody can be grouchy once in a while. That's, that's the truth. You know what Bob Quine told me? He said the first guy I saw play electric guitar, because he was from, like, Kent or Akron, Ohio, and he saw Buddy Holly the year I was born, 1957. I was humiliated in front of Bob Quine. And I, uh, Bob Quine is so important to me, you know, because I, I, I came to New York in 76 and started seeing the Voidoids, and Quine was like, so significant to me. And so years later, I'm, I'm recording with Richard Hell, and I'm doing this project called Dim Stars. It's me and Steve Shelley and Don Fleming, and, and I get Hell to sort of uh, be the vocalist and, and play bass. And I had this idea that we would do a um, a version of uh, "You Gotta Lose," and then we would do a version of uh, a song, uh, a couple of like lost punk rock songs, um, you know, that were happening in the early '80s. And uh, one was by Stickman with Ray Guns called "Christian Rat Attack." They're kind of an amazing Texas band. And then another one was by this uh, this Boston band uh, called Unnatural Acts. Uh, where they had a song called um, uh, The Plug. Don't pull the plug on me. And so I had Richard sing those songs, but you know he wasn't really that keen on singing these weird uh, uh, American underground punk tunes because they didn't really mean that much to him, but he did it anyway. But uh, he got into really into this project. So he thought, like, well, let's do some more work, and I'm going to bring in Bob Quine so we can play, uh, play something with him. And I was like, fantastic. So, so Quine shows up at the studio, this little studio on 14th Street, back in the day when 14th Street was basically just kind of like all night bagel shops and and and, uh, and 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 working prostitutes on the street, and so it's pretty kind of crazy, rough little area. Quine shows up, and he wants to play this old blues song called Natchez Burning, and uh, wonderful tune, and. I'm ready to do this, man. And so before we play, uh, somebody in the room passes around uh, a spliff Mota. of some mota, some very intensified green. Now, you know, I've been known to sort of take a toke, one, one toke across over the line once in a while, but I, I don't have much of a, um, uh, I don't have much of a tolerance. Anyway, so I smoked this thing and it was pretty narco. And I kind of like, I, 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 
I couldn't even like function. I felt like I was an orange in a closet. I was just like, I was messed up. And so I was like, oh, wow. It's just like, okay, quiet's going to show us how to play this too. It's really easy blues riff. Now, this is going to happen. Now, to, to add fire to the story, that month, I was on the cover of Guitar Magazine. And the cover story was, was called New Rage, like the like alternative rock guitar players. And I was the cover boy. I hate and so that there's word, a, alternative. So there's, there's a picture of me on the cover of like the most distinguished, established guitar magazine in America. There's me on the cover of it. And i like, come on, I can hardly play a G chord, and I'm on the cover of this magazine. But I can play guitar in my own way, right? So that's all there is to it. So that's what we talk about in the magazine. Anyway, we go in the studio. I sit across from, from Quine. Hell's next to me. And Quine's like, this is how it goes. It's a very sort of basic blues riff. <laughs> and I could hardly, I could hardly like put my hands around the neck of the guitar. It was like kind of like, it was just nothing it was, was right or real. Or not. And I couldn't strum or play. The heart. And, the heart. And, and, and Bob was just like looking at me. And then he's like, aren't you on the cover of Guitar Player Magazine? And I was like, yeah, man. He's like, but you don't, you can't even play a, a blues scale. You can't even play a blues chord. And I was like, I can't. I just can't do it now. <laughs> I soiled myself in front of Quine. And, uh, a self-soil. So <laughs> you know, you know the, the Blank Generation album? You know they cover, <laughs> you know they covered a Creedence song on there. Yeah, yeah, Walking on the Water. I I I I asked Dick Hell about that because you know what's very distinctive about that Creedence song? <clears throat> it's on the first album, right? It's the only song that the older brother Tom wrote. Oh. And I it, asked Dick Hell whose idea and he said it was Bob Quine's. Yeah, it makes sense. Of course. Yeah, it makes sense. So you know that was it. That was my only really connection with with Robert Quine was 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 just being uh, Johnny Too High. Do you remember? Yeah, that happens. You remember the back of the album, and he's got that Stratocaster that's black and white. Right. D Boone bought one just because of him. D Boone loved uh, the way he played, man. Wow, he that's cool. Believe that they did a Creedence song. Look, we're at the end of the uh, second hour, October 6, 2020 edition. Wap Peter, so special guest Thurston Moore. Hold tight for hour three. October 6, 2020, it's the third hour. Wap Peter.
Live from Pedro Show started the third hour off of Siren. What was Odysseus's uh, defense against the Siren? Odysseus's uh, 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 defense against the Siren. It was wax in the ears. Yeah, head that shit off. And then we had <laughs> Priceless and Worthless from Suzanne Lowy and Crane. Remember Crane? He did the trumpet for Project Mersh and the, oh, product, yeah. the product. He's almost the fourth minute man in some ways. Uh, so, yeah, Siren, Venus. Did the you, next one I'm going to play you, is Venus. I, I, uh, what what goes into you writing words these days? Because, man, you've been into poetry so big. I mean, that's one reason why you like Dick Hell and Tom Miller, right? They came to New York City in 1970 to write poems. Well, I, I thought that was that connection to that that lineage of, of, of literature was, was really, um, was really interesting because, well, first, first of all, you know, it was like you, you would hear about some of these writers listening when you would read interviews with like Lou Reed or, or even David Bowie in the early seventies, they would sort of name drop these writers. And, uh, you would learn, a, you would learn a lot sports. about, uh, you know, when you found out that Tom Verlaine's name and Richard Hell's name came from like French symbolist literature, you were like, well, what's, what's French symbolist literature, you know? And then you would find out that he, Tom Verlaine named himself after Paul Verlaine, this, this poet who had this kind of really interesting uh, relationship with this other poet named Arthur Rambo, who Patti Smith kept referencing. And then, Arthur, and then Arthur Rambo wrote a, 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 one of his poems was, you know, was called uh, a season in hell. And that's where Richard hell got his name from. Right. So there's all this kind of reference to like French symbolist poetry. And then you find this connection between French symbolist poetry, how it informed what was called the New York school of, 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 of poets that happened from the late 50s onwards into the 60s and this kind of confessional poetry that was liberated from the strictures of, of uh, academia and had this whole other dis distinct value to itself. And then it kind of intermingled with like experimental linguistic poetry. And that was really interesting to me all of a sudden. And it had a, quite a connection to these musicians, you know, who were kind of also kind of uh, working in that realm. I mean, both Tom and Richard had published their poems uh, under their original names, you know, Richard Myers, uh, uh, Tom, Richard Myers and Tom Miller, you know, in a couple of uh, poetry journals, like staple bound Mimeo poetry journals that had come out of that scene in the early seventies. So that just kind of led me into that. What, world. what, what about Teresa Stern? Well, Teresa Stern was, was them yeah. <laughs> creating a, 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 a poetry booklet where it was a unified voice of the two of them collaborating. And so they had this idea of interpose inter, um, what do you call it? What they put their faces on top of each other. Pose. So, um, and, uh, and they, and, and they wore wigs. And so they looked like they looked female and they called, they called themselves Teresa Stern as like the sole writer of this book. And it was, and they created like a, uh, <clears throat> sort of like an imaginary, uh, bio where it was like Teresa Stern was a, a, a Puerto Rican prostitute from right. uh, New Jersey who was also a poet. And so this was like this kind of somewhat of a found document and they published it on hell's publishing, uh, imprint dot. And, um, you know, and it was kind of like, it, it sort of had all this kind of talk about econo, like really econo, <laughs> like kind of minimalist sort of, uh, 
poetry uh, uh, pieces in this book. It was kind of a fantastic book. But the thing is, all those people were writing like with really kind of minimal kind of like ideas, you know, um, in getting to the essence of, of the language. You know, Patty's first books, like The Seventh Heaven, the same thing. You know, I mean, and it's, in a way, it was correlative to what was going on with like the Ramones, you know, like the first Ramones album is just like these really super econo tunes with these econo lyrics, you know. And so there was this thing going on at the time where it was like getting, trying to strip away the grandiose that was sort of like permeating the music culture at the time with like whatever. I mean, yes, or Peter Frampton or Almond Brothers Band or Emerson Lincoln Palmer and, you know, not, not to deride any of that. But that's sort of what was like had overtaken the music culture to the point where even, you know, the idea of glam rock with like Bowie and Mark Bolin, who were, you know, kind of leapfrogging over the hippie culture of the 60s and doing this kind of 50s primal kind of boogie rock. But they were still kind of had this grandiosity of just wanting to, like, you know, express a desire for wealth and champagne and cocaine and limousines and this kind of high life living. And so uh, these documents that you were seeing from like hell and Verlaine and Patty and, and the Ramones were just like, you know, they were something else entirely, you know, and they were really kind of going right to the essence of the work. And that was, I think what drew a lot of people like you and me and was just like that, you know, get rid of that effluvia, you know, yeah, don't um, forget, so, don't forget jet boy. Well, do your dolls. <laughs> I mean, talk about some econo words. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I want to play Venus, not play the television Venus. one.
you know, Prague and everything, you know, it was also happening in the art world. So you had this whole thing of minimalism, right? You know, concept, concept art, conceptual art, and the idea of like having real just minimalist statements, you know, and like cutting away like all this other kind of uh, trapping. So that's happening at the same time in the, in the early mid seventies onwards as, as punk, but, you know, what's interesting about that is a lot of the artists in the art scene, like who are coming out of like the whole minimalism era, they were really interested in punk rock. So you had a lot of artists going to CBGBs. You know, I think you had a lot of people in the art scene coming out of Cal Arts in L.A. going to, to the whiskey because they were interested in, in, in this music being really raw and stripped down. And it kind of was it, it equated to like what their sensibilities were as artists at that time. You know, but you know what? I don't think the the Ramones were going to like art galleries and checking out minimalist art. <laughs> you know? Well, mainly but the, it, the guy writing the tunes. Because get this, Thirst with Clem Burke, I got uh, Joey's brother Mickey had me and Clem do the whole first album on its 40th anniversary. So I had to learn all them tunes. And Dee Dee wrote them all. And Who? Dee Dee Ramone. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. He the was the player. main song. He was the main songwriter. That's right. No, totally. 
And uh, I got to learn him with Clem Burke. He, he lives in the Val now, and he came down to Pedro, and we did like seven, eight pracs. We got that shit tight. That's and great. It, yeah, it was a really neat thing to do. And it's not blues-based. It's strange. It's more like pop uh, with bridges. Yeah. Right? Yeah, bubblegum or something. But really interesting, and uh, I had to work hard at it. Clem was a righteous guy to play with. Can we go back to the poet thing? Because I was trying yeah, yeah. to get out of you these words on your brand new record. I feel there's still, you got to connect with that stuff you had for Tom and Richard. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 there's different ways of having lyrics sort of work in the song. I mean, so, you know, I have this this thing about when you're writing, when you're writing poetry as just sort of, an exercise in literature or whatever, you want to sort of have this expression exist in any which way. It could be like really kind of la di da confessional, like, or it can be really sort of specific to like the architecture of the words and the lines on the page. And there's all these different sort of aspects of of poetry and poetics that that you can engage with, which is I always find really completely, um, really really interesting in the whole discipline of poetry. So. I um I when I'm putting words to a song, it's either going to have to happen where the music exists, and then I sort of record it, and then I kind of know that I need lyrics in this one section, and I just kind of start listening and thinking and trying to create lines that will work within the service to the song, you know. Or I go through notebooks of either poems or just sort of spurious writing, and and I'll. It, and I'll just sort of take parts of sections out of different poems and make a, something wholly else, something entirely else to work within the song or I'll, I'll, I'll remod or rejig the, the lines or I'll just take a full poem and I'll just sort of like plug it right on top of the song and I'll, and I'll sing it and then I'll sort of kind of revise it a bit. Or <clears throat> I work with, I collaborate with another uh a lyricist or another writer in which I've been doing a lot lately. And, and like on this record, there's a lyricist, there's a writer uh, who I like a lot named radio, radio, radio. And um, it's just a pen name, obviously. And um, so I, I got into that because I really, I had used radio's lyrics on a, a few other songs through the, through the years. And I sort of got into this thing of, if I'm going to collaborate in a band and a band is such a collaboration because you're playing with your guitar player, your bass player, drummer, whatever, you know, I don't tell people what to play. I bring in the, I, you know, at this point I bring in a song, it's a song idea, it's a structure, but I'm playing with you because I like how you create, you know, and that's, that's, that's what I want. Right. So I'm going to take full credit for the song, <clears throat> but you're going to, you know, I, I you're going to be playing on the song cause I like what you come up with. And so, I never showed Deborah James what to play. They they create their own um, their own their own thing. I can thumbs up or thumbs down or sort of you know possibly guide it uh, to the dynamic that I prefer. But I thought maybe that's how it should also work with with the lyrics because the lyrics are should have equal value as an element in the song as as the instrumentation. So I really got into sort of collaborating with uh with radio radio and lyrics and she and radio radio wrote the lyrics to um uh a couple of the songs you've played tonight 
No, for sure. And so it's sort of like what like Robert Hunter wrote for the Grateful Dead, you know, or like um, the Bloister Colt. Bloister Colt was like the was a great model for that. Right. Because Bloister, you know, they were like, for they would have songs. They're like, hey, get Patty to write lyrics. You get Helen Wheels to write lyrics. You get Richard Meltzer to write lyrics. You know, I love that. I think, but they also wrote lyrics of Cream. their own as well. Cream, uh, Tales of Brave Ulysses. Right. They use this guy Peter Brown a lot. Pete Brown, right? Yeah. yeah. Politician. White Pete room. Brown. Pete Brown and public. And then there was a guy for the prod guys. His name was uh, Sinfield. Pete Sinfield. Pete, yeah, you're a big fan of Pete Sinfield. He wrote for Crimson and well. <laughs> 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 You have him. all of his records. Yeah, yeah. Well, he wrote words for these guys. <laughs> I think even PFM. Prim, oh, PFM. Weren't they kind of an Italian? They're the Italian prog guys. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway. Which ones did Radio Radio write words for on this new record? Which ones? Yep. I would. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Um we just heard some, we just some heard of our, Venus and Dreamers work. Dreamers work for sure. Radio okay. radio with the lyrics. Okay. Venus, there is no lyrics. Yeah, but that's what we just played, I said. Yeah. You could make you could put your own lyrics on there, Watt. You okay. make make them up. Go for it. I told that's you, the last that's the last track on the on I made the, a joke when when I started the music. I said it's not that Venus, because the Right, the Venus is the famous one yeah. is the television one, and and the joke about the television one is the arms. There ain't any arms; they broke off. <laughs> <laughs> I walked right into the arms of Venus Demilo. Right, but they but broke no arms. <laughs> <laughs> See, I got that back in 1976 when it came out. Okay, and, and it's in the stairway, right, of uh, the Louvre. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't fall into the fucking arms. Because <laughs> no arms. <laughs> they broke off. No, well, well, I think originally were, you know, that there was. A, I think that was a political thing, you know, yeah. like to, like smashing noses and arms. Well, there's there's no okay. head either. It was because now it's Christian and no more pagan and stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, television was heavy that way. And those guys were, they. you know, you, like you were saying, they, they uh, you know, I. I I learned something about Arthur Rambeau's poems. You know, he only did it for a couple of years, but he was actually putting colors to the vowels in the words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This teenager. Yeah, he was well beyond his years, wasn't he? Yeah. Incredible. Definitely. And he only does it for a little bit and then he quits. He starts writing. Well, you know, out. that that was an interesting thing about that scene in New York at that time because it was there was a do there was like a a, a dual situation of just sort of poet rock and sort of just pure primal like rock and roll like and it was all part of the punk rock scene and so you sort of had like hell and verlaine and and patty and you know to some extent david byrne and you know uh and then you sort of had like you know johnny thunders and the heartbreakers and and a, there was a band called fuse and even like wayne county and the backstreet boys you know that were just more sort of straight up kind of like like pure rock and roll just like good times and there's and that kind of like it was an it was an interesting relationship between you know this kind of uh i this 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 
this wanting to sort of extend sort of this kind of poetic verse that sort of came out of Dylan and, and, uh, and sort of beat literature and, you know, but with, you know, with Johnny Thunders, it was just like, he just, you know, wanted to be a pure rock and roll thing. But in, in, at some point it was curious because, you know, hell leaves television and he joins Johnny Thunders and to start the heartbreakers, you know, and it doesn't last very long, but they you know, throw him uh, out. He tried to take over, right? I never, well, I, I'm not quite, I never I'm asked not quite sure how to, what that. the dynamic was, but I heard that they know, had a meeting were, at Richard's apartment, and he said, "Look, Walter, this is what Walter said right before he passed away. Walter, you ain't going to sing anymore. I'm singing all the songs. I let Johnny sing a couple, but he tried to take over the band, so they they quit on hmm. him. Hmm. Now I never asked Richard about this because I love the guy so much. He just turned seventy, and he's in great shape, man. I I, I sent him a uh, happy birthday, yeah." Yeah, he was in Barcelona looking at the Gaudi. What, uh, what's your ne next pl plan? What's your next plan? Do you have a new record coming out? Uh, well, not, you were talking, not, I'm not you were a Mike Watt one, but I'm on a buttload of, of stuff, collaborations I've been doing during this Quentin Quarantino mode. Do you do you, do you have a um, do you use like these 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 uh, do you use like Bandcamp and stuff like that? Not yet. I'm going to start. You know, it's kind of okay. It's a bit of a, you know, it's like non-hierarchical and, you know, I think they kind great. of, it's kind of artist friendly and um, yeah. I think it's great. Right now. I don't I'm know what my, my next jam will be. You know, I just put this record out like two, three days ago, but I, uh, you know, I'm going to, I kind of, I'm going to play at, at, a, at a few venues, like one in London mm -hmm. called Cafe Auto, which you know, and then I'm going to go down into France and play some something and and then i have a van that i rented and we're going to be really careful and just go into these places and set up some cameras and play in these venues with no audience and we're going to stream it with a very you know inexpensive ticket stream kind of thing and give and give part of the revenue to the venue so to sort of give some kind of support and gesture towards you know the welfare of these of these venues that support touring bands so we're kind of doing that uh pretty soon um like well, in about a week's I, I was time asking musically because you were saying earlier you know on this record here i wanted to get stuff out of my system so when i hear you say out of my system that means yeah you're ready for some another thing another adventure well, I, yeah man i want to progress forward i mean i you know i'm not and wh where not do you like, see that not, where do you see that i mean it's yeah but it's not like i'm going to the next record's not going to be like you know duet for chainsaw and piano or anything, but I uh, yeah it might be, but I uh, <laughs> no I I kind of like there's certain motifs that I've, I I know that I've been mining you know like uh, a lot and I kind of wanted to sort of get those out of my system. I wanted to sort of put them put them to bed a little bit and sort of think about um, new territory, but at, but at the same time. I kind of like having a, a identifiable vocabulary to work with. I, I always like hearing music by people and recognizing them, you know, I, and I always like that about genres too. Like when people say like, Oh, reggae sounds the same. It's like, well, that's why I like it. I like the voice of community. You know, I always liked, I think that's what drew me to like hardcore in the early eighties, even though I was kind of like coming out of punk and getting more into experimental art rock hearing hardcore bands have this kind of shared idea, this like this one kind of vocabulary that they all did variations on, 
you know, and there was outliers, obviously. I mean, there's like butthole surfers and the puppets and you guys and, you know, whatever. And it's like, you know, I never really considered you guys hardcore bands, but you were of the time and of the movement as, as we were to some extent, but not, not, but you, we, you weren't minor threat. I wasn't minor threat. Butthole surfers weren't minor threat, you know, or negative approach. Those were the, those were like the pure hardcore bands and that kind of language that those guys were playing with, you know, and I went, and I was fascinated that it was like this, it was this community language. And it was like, that was to me where this, it was really political. It was a strength in numbers situation. And that's what attracted me. And that's what attracts me to genres of music is that, that, that shared idea, you know, and then these variations on a theme, you know, you know, that go on within it. Well, you know, like most movies, Jimmy Cagney plays Jimmy Cagney. But, yes, but not okay. for but not for Yankee Doodle Dandy. <laughs> yeah, he stepped out for Yankee Doodle Dandy. He was so, an outlier. So that's what I'm asking you: Is your next record? A Yankee oh, Doodle I see. Doodle my Dandy? next record is going to be is going to be Yankee Doodle Dandy. We'll see what happens on November second. <laughs> third, third. Well, second. Second, yeah, you're we're right. still third, waiting. Third is, third is you know living in in in, in England. Yeah. God, in 2016, I stayed up until 4 a.m. just to sort of see that misery happen, you know? How and long, I was just saying, How long you been <clears> living there, Thurston? About seven, eight years. Wow. And, and it's good. Has it, cha- like, has know, it changed? It allows me- has it changed you? Um, it's given me a bit of a, certainly a distance um, from the USA where it, it allows me to have uh possibly a different perception of North America that I had while living there um which I can you know we can get into but that's kind of another three hours but I uh <laughs> I you know I it 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 allows me to in, engage with the rest of the world a little more readily than living in the USA um which I which I like. And, you know, as far as being a working musician, I found that I had more opportunity to work um, in the UK and through uh, the rest of Europe than I did in the USA, at, uh, especially in the last, in the, in the last decade. Um, you know what Sly Stone said? The Stones? Sly Stone. Oh, Sly Stone. What do you say? It's not where you're from. It's where you're at. It's very true. That's very true. You know what the temptation said? What's that? No matter where he hung his hat, it was his home. (laughs) 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 Kind of the same thing. (laughs) Kind of. Kind of different. Kind of but different. No, I was just curious about that, that kind of thing. You know, all this guy, we took this angle in the talk when I just asked you about plans. And you're right, it's hard to make plans. I was just thinking uh, musically, because you kept saying, I'm getting this out of my system. So that's saying to me, oh, oh I'm ready for something else. And that's what I was trying to get at. Well, you know, I've been I, 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 I've been spending all this downtime writing a, 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 an extensive manuscript that I'm called, that I've called Sonic Life, where I'm just sort of discussing about the process of, 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 making music through the lens of, uh, of being a teenager in the seventies and, and being introduced to 
like new ideas and radical music and subversive uh, 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 sounds in, 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 the, in the culture because I'm really interested because of why. I want to know why. And so I start, I start analyzing it and looking into that personally and then sort of what, what these, these documents that you come across, like why do they resonate with you so much, like these certain pieces of literature, these, these records and, these, you know, and, uh, and, and really looking deep into them and sort of how they become these talismans that sort of become more rampant as the seventies progress into like 1980. And then, you know, just moving, uh, uh, and when you're like, when you reached your age of 20 and just sort of moving into this metropolis, New York city and, and colluding and colliding with these different people who are coming from different angles, but basically have similar interests in these aesthetics and then how that kind of comes together, certainly for, for my experience with, with Sonic youth and then that whole community, but also talking about the, the economic uh, reality of what uh, New York City uh, was dealing with at that time that allowed this kind of uh, lifestyle to to exist in its in its foment. So I've been writing a, a, a lot of, about that this whole time since I haven't been touring because you know when you tour and travel, it's nothing but distraction from writing. Although Absolutely. you seem to be, you seem to keep a blog quite a uh, whatever you diary, the hoop page. Yeah, diary. I keep the hoop page. Diario or Nikki in Japanese. No, that's really that's. I mean, you, you know, you're 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 you're. Uh, Part of that is therapy, thirst. So I it keeps some ah. focus on the tour. No, I know because I know every place that you stay. I know I stay at the same places sometimes. They always say, "Yeah, Watt was just here." And like what he does first thing in the morning, six a.m. He's sitting there like writing his diary. Chimping, chimping, remember. Chimping. I use this allegory about the 10,000 chimps in a room with a typewriter. Eventually, they'll do the entire works of William Shakespeare. <laughs> Remember the yeah. cover of the Mekons album? That's the right. Quality of mercy is not sternin'. It's not sternin'. <laughs> almost there. Like, it was almost there. <laughs> Thirst has been great having you on the show, man. When you get this... Uh, this is going to be a book you're talking about? Yeah, it's called Sonic Life. I'll yeah. publish it someday. I know, I know. Sonic it, Life. Not... I remember the time you put your arm on a Xerox machine to make a T-shirt design. That's right. I have a That's the only tattoo I have is yeah. a Sonic Life. I got it from this guy, Leo, who was a tattoo. He's no longer alive, I don't think. And he, was a, he was a tattoo artist in uh, Los Angeles. I got it in Los Angeles. West Coast! Yep, just like Scotty. Scotty couldn't even find it in Hollywood when they were making the Funhouse album. He had to go to Long Beach at the Pike where the sailors were, to get that star on his shoulder. Oh, really? I wouldn't shit you. Yeah, I don't think you would. Okay. It's been beautiful having you aboard, though. Next time, next music or this book, let's come back on and talk, okay? I'm down. I'm down. Thanks for having me, Mike. This Absolutely. has been fantastic. Okay, Thirst. People, it's been October 6, 2020. This is Wife Peebles. So keep your powder dry. Mm.